Well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Leviticus chapter 8. Uh, We're in Leviticus chapter 8, and we're reading verses 1 to 17, and then we're going to read a section of verses 22 to 24. So let me just kind of give you a heads up in terms of where we're going uh, where we've been first, uh, we've been covering the book of Exodus, looking at different chapters as we're following the Bible reading plan. And um, when we had finished the core values, we set out for six weeks to do that. And so we've done that for, th- today is our sixth week. We're entering two weeks of looking at First Timothy, uh, where we see Paul's heart for missions as he charges the church to engage in global missions. And then after that, we're going to pick up... Um, Our Bible reading plan at that point will have entered into Matthew. We're not going to do the same. We're not going to follow the Bible reading plan, but we're going to take a look at the events of uh, of certain events in Jesus' life as we have entered the season of Lent and as we're headed toward Good Friday and Easter. And so we're going to do that. And then after that, we're going to take a look look at um, the teachings of Jesus in Matthew. And then we're going to look at the miracles of Jesus in Matthew, encounters, Uh, with Jesus and Matthew and the parables of Jesus and Matthew. So we're going to be in Matthew then for um, probably about 20 weeks or so, so uh, so a good amount of time. And so just I want to let you know where we're going. And um, so sadly, we're in our last time. Sadly, maybe for me, maybe excitingly for you, we're in our last week in Leviticus, uh, which is a really difficult book to understand. Um, But hopefully that outline that I provided in the pastoral email and shared last Sunday was kind of helpful um, these chapters are about the way to the Holy One and then the way to holiness, how to live out our lives. And so with that, we're in Leviticus chapter 8, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 17 and then 22 to 24. So please hear now the reading of God's holy word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with them, and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim, and he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in the front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. And he killed it. And Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and Moses burned them on the altar. 
But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung, he burned up with fire outside the camp as the Lord commanded Moses. Now to verse 22. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And he killed it, and Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We know that your word is not just a guidebook. It's not just a textbook. It is the living word of God. It records history. It records the way you were with your people. It records the way you spoke to your people. But most importantly, it records the way you were working out redemption and salvation from the garden. And it teaches us, Lord, that you are still at work even now because there is a promised destination, the new heavens and the new earth. And so as we, as the New Testament people of God, find ourselves in between where the book of Acts ends and, and where the vision of Revelation starts, Father, I pray that we would be a people that sticks close to your word because this is the way, Lord, that we can know your plans, know what you are saying to us, know how you are speaking to us, knowing what knowing what, what you want us to be and to do and how we're called to live and who we are in light of your Son. And so, Lord, in this hour, I pray that you would just bless us by speaking to us and encouraging us and helping us hear your voice clearly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When you were younger and you wanted permission from your parents to, to go somewhere or to do something with your friends, didn't you always mention that one friend that you, your parents would approve of? Right? You intentioned that you would leave out the friends that, uh, you know, you know your parents didn't like so much. And so, hey, mom, I'm going to the movies. With who? Steve. <laughs> oh, I love Steve. Oh, I know Steve's parents. You don't tell them about Mark and <laughs> James and Peter and all the other guys. And didn't you always mention the good kid, the one that you knew that if you attach yourself to that kid's name, your parents would say, oh, well, that's okay. You know, nobody teaches us to do these things. I mean, kids just kind of know. It's natural. It just comes so normally to us. We know that if we associate ourselves with the right person, if we identify with the right person, person then we get a, a certain kind of permission, right? We get excused from something. You know, I was a college pastor for many years, and this always happened. You know, the prerequisite to being a college pastor is you need to be able to stay up late at night, you know, talking, eating, you know, things I'm really good at. Um, and what would always happen is I had this policy, never lock my door. It's probably dangerous, but never lock my door. And people were always over, and they would stay late at night. And uh, there's always these moments when we would be talking about life, faith, school, whatever, and somebody's phone would ring and the whole room would get quiet because you know who was calling. It was somebody's mom. <laughs> and the whole room would get quiet and the person would pick up and, you know, we would get quiet to give him respect, but it would make it more awkward because you could hear the mother on the other line, where are you? Do you know what time it is? And that student 
never instructed to do this, never told to do this, never advised to do this, but say, hey, wait, mom, mom, it's okay. I'm at Pastor Andrews. And then you could actually hear the, the voice of, you know, the parent kind of drop and say, well, okay. <laughs> and I always thought to myself, who taught you to do that? And that's such a convenient excuse. I mean, these college kids could be at, like, parties or clubs, and then, oh, I'm with Pastor Andrew. But they know you attach your name to somebody, and then you're excused or you're given permission. This is how the priesthood worked. This is how the priests of Israel worked. Israel needed to attach themselves to the priest, attach themselves, identify themselves with the priest in order to get access to God. You see, the people of Israel couldn't just bring their sacrifices to God whenever they wanted, however they wanted. They could actually have the best sacrifices, sacrifice without any spots or without any blemish. They could bring that before God, and God would still say to them, but where's the priest? This is how essential the priesthood was for the life of Israel. And if you're reading in the Bible reading plan, Leviticus 1 to 7 is all about these sacrifices, but if you notice, the priests are so involved in the sacrifices of the people. Well, when we get to Leviticus 8 today, we have this story about Aaron and his sons being consecrated to be Aaron the high priest and his sons to be the priests of Israel. And so when we read this, as we read this occasion, this event in Israel's history, you know, as Christians, we need to know not just what happened back then. That's important. We need to know what happened. But we also need to know what does this teach us today about Jesus? What does this teach us today about ourselves, about our lives? And so the gospel truth that we're going to consider is this. Jesus is the final priest through whom we are restored to God and made his holy priesthood. Jesus is the final priest through whom we are restored to God and made his holy priesthood. That's ultimately what this passage, I believe, is about. And we're going to consider this gospel truth looking at four things, four headings. Uh, They are a portrait of Aaron, a picture of restoration, a priest for the people, and a priesthood of believers. So first, a portrait of Aaron. Look with me at verse 1. Keep your Bibles open because everything I say needs to be tested, or at least, or maybe, no, I don't have the verses on the screen, so um, keep your phone open, um, Bible open, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bowl of sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Okay, so what do we have happening here? God wants to present Aaron and his sons before the congregation of Israel. And the reason that he wants them presented is because Aaron and his sons are going to be the priests. The priests that Israel was promised. You see, back in Exodus chapter 28 and 29, God identified Aaron and his sons, saying, these are the priests that I'm going to assign to you guys. And so he gives all of these instructions in Exodus 29. This is what you're supposed to do when, you know, the priests... um, become the official priesthood of Israel. So that's introduced in Exodus 29, and then Leviticus 8 is the fulfillment of it, what actually happens. And so I want to draw your attention to Aaron, and just consider Aaron for a little bit. Aaron, if you you didn't know, Aaron is Moses' older brother, and he is kind of the second in command of Israel, 
So when, Israel, so when Moses goes up on the mountain, Aaron is the one who's kind of overlooking and taking care of the people. Um, but if you remember, Aaron's involvement in the salvation of Israel is really just by default. I mean, it was pretty much because Moses didn't want to step up. When God said, Moses, I'm choosing you as my you know, mouthpiece, as my deliverer, Moses makes that excuse, well, you know, I can't speak, and you know, I don't really want to go, and then God says, okay, I'll send your brother Aaron. So Aaron, kind of by default, takes this second-in-command position. So after the Exodus, after Aaron also helps Moses lead the people out, Exodus 28, God says, okay, he identifies Aaron. I'm going to use you to be the priest, the high priest, and your sons to be the priests of Israel. Which means, what did a priest do? A priest worked in the tabernacle. They worked in the tent. They helped out in all the sacrificial systems. And so God begins to describe what the priests are to be and what they are to uh, do. And he also begins to describe the way they are called to distinguish themselves. As the priests, they're set aside um, to be used by God. And so they wear uh, special garments. There's uh, special sacrifices. There's a special ceremony that we're reading about in Leviticus 8. And so one of the interesting things is Aaron, you have to remember the Israelites, they're Middle Eastern. So Aaron, as the high priest, has to wear a turban. And on the turban is this plate. And on the plate of pure gold is inscribed the words holy to the Lord. And so the priest, the high priest is set apart as holy to the Lord. And so the high priest not only has this special uh, role and responsibility in terms of working in the tabernacle, but I actually have a verse here, Exodus 28 to 29. This is the job description of the high priest. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron, listen, shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. And so this calling of the high priest, it was so privileged, but it was weighty. You needed to bear Israel's judgment on your heart as you stood before God. And so this is the calling for Aaron in Exodus 28 and 29. God identifies them. And then Leviticus 8 is where the priests are consecrated. But something happens between Leviticus 28 and 20, or Exodus 28 and 29 and Leviticus 8. It's a little incident we read about two weeks ago involving Aaron, Israel, and a golden calf. Exodus 32. Now let me read for you relevant portions of this chapter, but here's what I want you to realize. Aaron has been identified. He knows that he's going to be the priest of Israel. God says, you're going to be the priest. And he says, you're going to wear these garments. You're set aside as holy to the Lord. Aaron says, okay, God. Exodus 32. When the people saw, now pay attention to Aaron's role in all of this. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people ga gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he, that is Aaron, received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, 
And Aaron made a proclamation this is to Israel. He said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. You see, in the golden calf incident, the people sinned. They disobeyed God. They really did done mess up. But it was all under Aaron's leadership. And so if you remember the story, God threatens to destroy the Israelites. He is so angry. He says, I'm going to start again with you, Moses. And Moses says, no, no, no. He intercedes on Israel's behalf. Then Moses comes down the mountain, and he's so furious. He's so angry. He comes down, and he's holding the two tablets of the law, right? The Ten Commandments. Now, people get confused with this. They think it's um, Ten Commandments, or it's uh, Ten Commandments and Ten Commandments, Right? But it was most likely, I think, five and five. And he comes down, and he's so angry that he throws him against the ground. Verse 19 says, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. So he, break, so he's, he gets so angry, he throws the tablets down. Then he turns to Aaron in verse 21, and he says, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Oh, that's an accusation. What have these people done that you are heaping a great sin upon their head? Now, think about this. Moses, or Aaron was elected and identified as the high priest, and his job is to bear the judgment of Israel on his heart, not cause the judgment over Israel. Aaron is supposed to remove Israel's sin, but what does he do here? He's actually bringing sin on them. He's supposed to represent the interests of Israel before the Lord, but he only cares about self-interest because I want you to compare Moses and Aaron because Aaron is going to be the high priest. Listen to how Moses responds to all this. I have it in the next verse. Chapter 32, verses 30 and 32. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, God, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses is innocent, yet he's willing to die in Israel's place because of their sin. And this is true sacrificial leadership, right? He's willing to take the punishment when others deserve it, not himself. He's saying, blot me out. Now take Moses. Compare that to what Aaron says. This is Aaron speaking to Moses in verse 22. Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to him, let uh, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. And I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. What do you notice? Aaron is out to save his own skin. He would much rather the nation be scorched than he be burned. This is the man who is supposed to stand before God and bear the judgment of Israel. He is so guilty. He's trying to pass off blame. You... Moses, you know what they're like. Moses says, yeah, and that's why I'm saying God blot me out instead of them. We're told in Exodus 32 that when they gave the gold, Aaron fashioned it, and he engraved this image 
And then here he tries to play dumb, and he says, I just threw it in the fire, and it came out, and it's a Christmas miracle. No, 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 Aaron. And as a result of all of this, the Bible says that 3,000 people died. That was the punishment. That was the judgment. Now, here's what I'm wondering. What happened to the high priest who's supposed to bear Israel's judgment on their hearts? How can Aaron really be the priest that Israel needs? How dare he wear the turban that says holy unto the Lord? Because he's definitely not. And so I wanted to spend time on this portrait of Aaron because I think the Bible really hides you know, n- none of his blemishes, none of his wrinkles. It's like, this, this is your high priest, Israel. Good luck. Things don't seem to look very hopeful, but this leads to our second point, which is this. A picture of restoration. You know, knowing this about Aaron, right, this was all public. Aaron led them into sin, right? This was all very public. Imagine the suspense in Aaron's camp, or in Israel's camp. So God, he chooses his candidate, Aaron and his sons, that's Exodus 28 and 29. And then on the campaign trail, Aaron is involved in scandal and leadership failure, and he totally shows his incompetence for the job in Exodus 32, And God is so upset, he threatens to destroy Israel until Moses intercedes. So what's going to happen to Aaron? You know, what's going to happen to the priesthood? And imagine the suspense, because God says, this is my chosen priest. And then this priest leads them into sin. And now Israel is going, okay, what's going to happen? Do we get a new priest? Well, the Bible kind of Pushes, pushes the pause button and says, you got to wait a little bit more because all this other stuff happens. God says, okay, Israel, I want you to leave Sinai. That's Exodus 33. And then he says, hear more instruction for the tabernacle. That's Exodus 35 to 39. He says, okay, build a tabernacle. That's Exodus 40. Then he says, here are the laws for the sin offerings and the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and the peace offerings and all the offerings, Ex- Leviticus 1 to 7. So it, co- it becomes time to consecrate the priest. So God says what? All Israel gather. Right, The whole congregation here is gathered in Leviticus 8. And as they're gathered, imagine what Israel is thinking. What is God going to do? Is he going to give to us a new priest? Because they've not just seen, but they've participated in sin with Aaron. And so they're wondering, you know, I mean, what would you be thinking? You know, I'd be thinking, okay, I get it, God. Everyone's a sinner. Nobody's perfect. You know, the pastor's not perfect. The elders aren't perfect. This guy? This guy? He's the best guy for the job. He's the one who's supposed to represent me before God to clear my sin. He's the one who led me into sin. I mean, imagine this. Could you trust me and could you trust my preaching if, let's say, um, you know, Friday night I drove you to Atlantic, I kidnapped you, I drove you to Atlantic City, I made you get drunk, I made you gamble away all of your savings, and then on Saturday, uh, on Sunday morning, uh, you know, I stole the car with you, and we drove here, and we got here right before service so I could preach and administer the sacraments. Could you sit in the pews and go, hey, thank God for that man? Not at all. I hope you would question my character. I would hope you'd question my calling. So here in Leviticus 8-2, God says, take Aaron and assemble all of the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So all of Israel, all the people who just sinned under Aaron's leadership, they're called together, but they're not called to witness divine punishment. 
They don't see the skies be, you know, split open and God's mighty judgment hand come down and smite Aaron and just squash him. That's not what they see. They don't see a picture of judgment. What does Israel see? They see a picture of restoration. They see a picture of a failed man, a total sinner, just like them, being called by God, shown the richness of God's grace and God's mercy, and then is ordained and consecrated as their priest. They see verse 6 happening. Aaron and his sons, they're washed with water. A coat is put around them. A sash is tied around their waist. A breast piece is placed on them. A turban set on his head. What a sight for Israel. Now, this doesn't trivialize God's holiness. This doesn't make God's holiness small. This captures the beauty of God's grace and his mercy. You know, as Israel saw this, as we read about it, we cannot, get a, 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 we cannot help but get a glimpse of who God is. A God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Aaron's failure in his sin does not disqualify him from God's grace. In the same way, that we all know what Christianity is about, what the gospel is about. We say no one is so good that you can earn God's grace. No one is so good that you can merit God's grace. But do you also know that nobody is so bad that you can unearn God's grace? Do you know that nobody is so sinful that you can demerit God's grace? Because isn't this true? No matter how fast your sin makes you run away from God, the speed of God's grace not only catches up to you, but it always overtakes you. It's always greater. And this is a great and important gospel lesson that Israel saw and Aaron experienced and God was teaching his people. And it's the exact same gospel lesson that you and I, all of us here, we need to be reminded of this afternoon. By God's grace, he meets us in our failures. He meets us in failure. Then he forgives us, restores us, and then chooses to use us in his service. I think a lot of people, when they think of this kind of pattern of meeting someone in failure and forgiveness and restoration and in commission, you should think of, if you know your Bible well, the Apostle Peter and the way that he betrayed Jesus in front of a little servant girl saying, I don't know the man, and Jesus would bring him back and say, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. But if you think about it, you know, you think, oh, Peter's story, that's a quintessential uh, story of forgiveness and restoration. No, no, no. Aaron is the OG. That's original gangster, if you don't know what that means. But Aaron's story makes Peter look like a saint. The depth of Aaron's sin and his failure helps us to sense the abundance of God's grace and his mercy in meeting us when he should reject us, in forgiving us when he should judge us, in restoring us when he should punish us, in commissioning us when he should never trust us. This is a picture of the gospel, a picture of God's restoring grace in our lives. Because the reality is, you and I, haven't we failed God miserably? We don't live as we ought to. But in the midst of that, God meets us to forgive us of our offenses, to restore us. 
This is what the gospel promises you. And so what happens in Aaron's life, it, th- this story isn't just something we read about. This story is something that we experience. It's our story. God has met us in our failure. God has forgiven us and restored us. And now he says, hey, I want you to live for me. I want you to be useful in my kingdom. Each and every time, this is not just a story that we experience once, but in every failure we are met with forgiveness, we are met with restoration. This is the God who pursues us. So how is all this possible? How can your life be a picture of God's restoring grace? And that leads to our third point, a priest for the people. A priest for the people. If you look at verse 14, Ordination ceremony continues, and it says this. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. Why did Aaron and his sons need to lay their hands on the sin offering? Weren't they the ones who were supposed to help other people with their sin offerings? So you can imagine all of Israel, all over a million people in Israel, were crowded, and they're witnessing their high priest making atonement for his sins. Because what? God was making it very clear. Listen, Israel, even the priests need the same forgiveness that you need. The sacrifices weren't just for Israel, they were for the priests as well. And these priests, they would always need to atone for their own sins first before they could make atonement for anybody else. What was the one qualification for the priesthood? There was only one, and that is that they would be completely holy. They would be completely without sin, but even in that one qualification, they failed. You know, every once in a while, I like to read up on qualifications uh, for how to make it as a special force Green Beret. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll tell you why. When I was a kid, I, I, when I, you know, when people say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I want to be a Green Beret. I want to be in the special forces because my dad was the equivalent of that in Korea. And so he has this awesome black and white picture of him, you know, parachuting out of a plane. And, um, and so, you know, just growing up, I said, I want to be in the special forces. I want to be the best of the best. It's always a dream I had. Um, and then I became a pastor. <laughs> but I still live in that fantasy sometimes. And so from time to time, you know, I'll, I'll just go on and I'll just Google, you know, all the, like, what are the qualifications? And I'll just kind of read over it and just, think, you know, how do you qualify to be selected to be the best of the best? And you can argue, okay, it's not, you know, it's Delta Force or it's, you know, whatever it is. But I, I do that every once in a while. And, um, you know, when I get to the physical requirements section and, like, the endurance test, you know, numbers and scores, I'm floored that any human being can do the things that they're required to do to meet the qualifications. And I remember reading once um, about the Green Berets that in their like 80-pound pack that they have to that they put on, they're required to run two miles in 12 to 14 minutes with a full 80-pound pack on. Can you believe it? I wasn't even concerned about the 12 to 14 miles. I read, you have to run two miles. And I was like, oh, jeez. <laughs> Who could do such a thing? The qualifications, why do you have them? Because you weed out the extraordinary, the exceptional from everybody else. And there's a group of people that can meet that. I mean, it seems, it's seemingly impossible. But there are people who can do it. 
But the priests of God in Israel, the qualification of absolute holiness, of perfect purity, being without sin, that's not just seemingly impossible. That is impossible. Nobody could actually live this way. And because of that, no priest on his own merit, no priest based on himself could actually qualify. And this means that Israel never had a perfect priest. They never had somebody who could stand before God and represent them on the merits of their own holiness. They could never have somebody who would plead Israel's case before God based on their own perfection. But that's such good news because what Israel had as a preview, we have in Jesus Christ. You see, Why don't we have animal sacrifices? And the answer is because Jesus Christ is the true sacrifice slain for our sins once for all. Okay. But why don't we have priests? Because Jesus Christ was the priest to whom all other priests pointed. You know, he wasn't only just a perfect offering that was a pleasing aroma to God. He was much more. He was also the perfect priest who could plead our case not on the basis of that blood of animals, but on the basis of his own blood. And he could do this because he had no sins that he needed atoned for. Jesus was the only man who could stand before God in his holy presence and not be consumed. He was the only person who could stand before the Father in the Holy of Holies, and God had no reason to send holy fire to consume him. Yet, Jesus Christ was the only man who walked into that Holy of Holies, and he was consumed. The wrath of God was poured out on him. On the cross, for our sake. As our true high priest, Aaron merely only pointed to Jesus Christ, the truly innocent one, the blameless one, who bore the judgment of his people on his heart before God. But no one else was willing to take your sin, to take your place, to take your judgment. Jesus Christ volunteered. And now Jesus stands in your defense before the Father. It's like, imagine you did a horrible crime. You, I'm not even going to say something. You, you, you did a horrible crime, and you're calling every lawyer to represent you. And there are witnesses there's video recording you even confess to it your lie detector says all point to your guilt and you're calling and you're looking for a lawyer and nobody wants to represent you you don't find jesus's number and give him a call jesus seeks you out and he says i know your guilt i know your guilt better than you know your guilt yet I will stand in your defense. And he's able to do this as our high priest. Hebrews 7, 26-27 says this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. 
Jesus Christ is the priest for all people. He is your priest. His is the name that you need to attach yourself to. He is the person you need to associate with. He is the person whose name you bring up to gain favor. Why? Because he is your defense. He is your intercessor. He is your access. He is your advocate. He is your answer. And as the perfect priest, his is the name that clears you before God. His is the name that stays God's hand of judgment. His is the name that you call when Satan tempts you to despair. When he tells you of the guilt within. Jesus is the name that you bring up to silence the accusations of the evil one. Do you trust in Jesus this way? I'm not asking, do you know if Jesus is the true high priest? Some of you read this passage in Leviticus 8, and you already know, okay, Jesus is the high priest. I'm not asking if you know that. I'm asking if you know that Jesus stands in your defense. I'm asking you if you know that there is one who, in his sinlessness and his blamelessness, stood before the Father. He didn't need to place his hand on a bull because he had no sins to atone for. Yet he places his hands on yours. And it's the reverse of the priest, whereas the priest would lay their hand on a blameless sacrifice and the sins of Israel would be transferred. Jesus Christ places his hands on your head and your sins are transferred to him. We read this story. You know, Aaron represents Jesus, but Aaron also represents us. Maybe like Aaron, you succumb to the temptations of others, just like Israel was saying, make us a golden calf, and he fell into the temptation. Maybe we fall into temptation like Aaron. Maybe like Aaron, you also blame others for your sins. God, don't you know this person? Oh, this person said this. This person angered me. That's why I responded in sin. Maybe like Aaron, you have sinned, and because of your sin, others have suffered consequences. Just like Aaron sinned and 3,000 died in judgment. Maybe because of your sin, somebody else is suffering. Maybe like Aaron, you have loved idols, and you have placed something else where God alone should be. And if any of these are true, then just like Aaron also needed mediation, just like Aaron also needed another priest to represent him. So may you look to Jesus, of whom Hebrews testifies, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw to God through him. You know, this is the good news of the gospel. You have a great high priest. His name is Jesus. He bears your judgment on his heart as he stands before God. He meets you in your failure. He offers forgiveness by his blood. He restores you in his grace. But that's not it. He makes you into something new. And this is our last point. A priesthood of believers. If you read this passage, there is something very interesting and very strange in the ceremony. Verses 23 to 28. Moses took some of the blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. I don't know about you, but it makes me really uncomfortable to read the word big toe in the Bible. But what's difficult for us to understand would have been so clear to the Israelites because for in that culture, the right side was the dominant, was more favored, was preferred. Benjamin, son of my right hand. 
to sit at someone's right hand is preferred. Jesus Christ, when he ascended, sits at the right hand of God, the Father. And so by marking Aaron on the ear and the thumb and on his big toe, God was saying this. God is saying to the priest, I am claiming all of you. And you're saying, well, the ear to the toe, that's kind of strange. In the same way we say head, shoulders, knees, and toes, it's the same concept. From your ear to your toe, God is claiming you. He's marking with blood, saying, you are mine, to the priests of Israel. And it also represented more. As the priests, they were marked with blood on their ear, meaning what? They needed to listen to God's word. They were marked with blood on their hand, meaning what? That they needed to serve and do God's work with their hands. They're marked on their toes, meaning what? They are called to walk in God's ways. This is how the priesthood was set apart for God. This is how they lived their lives in service to him. And in the same way, every Christian, every one of you in here who claims Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that means you are marked with the blood of Jesus. And if you are marked and you are set aside, that means you too are a priesthood. So that Peter would say in 1 Peter 2, 5, that you are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable through Jesus Christ. The gospel doesn't just offer you forgiveness and restoration. It does that, but it also brings to you transformation. You are forgiven by Christ, restored, so that now you are made a priesthood. And what Peter's saying here is, as a priesthood, you don't give physical sacrifices. Jesus was already that sacrifice, but now you offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As a royal priesthood, you guys are a royal priesthood. You must offer the sacrifice of your obedience, the sacrifice of your praise, and the sacrifice of your heart, all of your devotion. And what does that look like? It looks like the same thing for the Israelite priests. As a set-aside royal priesthood of God marked with the blood of Jesus, you too are now to hear God's word. You are to do God's work. You are to walk in God's ways. This is the calling for Christians who are now set aside by Jesus Christ to be his priesthood. Anybody who has experienced the gospel, anybody who who knows what it means for Jesus to meet you in failure, for Jesus to forgive you, for Jesus to restore you, anybody who knows and experiences the gospel now must be transformed by that same gospel to live as God's holy priesthood. And as we now come to the table, we know that we are, this is not an altar. We are not re-sacrificing Christ. He has been sacrificed once for all. But in the table, we are being restored again in grace. We are being reminded of the price he paid. And in the dismissal and the benediction, we are being sent out as God's royal priesthood. Friends, Jesus Christ is the final high priest who brings to you restoration and transforms you to be a holy and royal priesthood. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word not only gives to us confidence to know what Jesus offers us, but it gives us hope in knowing what Jesus has transformed us to. He didn't forgive us and leave us alone. He forgave us, and then he brought us, and he set us aside by marking us with his blood. And Father, I pray that all of us would 
derive much encouragement from this, that we have a high priest who stands in our defense. And against the accusations of the evil one who tells us, hey, you're a failed Christian. You're a failed student. You are a failed son or daughter. You are a failed parent. But against the accusations and the condemnation, Christ stands in our defense. Reassure us of that gospel hope, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And would you receive now the benediction? May the grace of our Lord and Savior and great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, the Father Almighty, who would send to us the true priest to bear the judgment of his people in his heart, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who empowers us now to live as a holy priesthood. May the blessing of this triune God be with God's people both now and forever. Amen. Colossians three sixteen to 17 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Go in peace.